God, it is so easy to rest in ourselves. It's so easy for me, Lord, to find my righteousness, to find my central good in my works, in my efforts, in some other thing, Lord, of this world. Spirit of God, we need Jesus this morning. We need the cross on full display. We need the gospel proclaimed to our hearts, and the only way this happens is through your work, not ours. So, Lord, we ask this morning, would you comfort us with the gospel in Jesus' name? Amen. We use this language a lot at Gospel Life Church. So what I want to say, hopefully, even if you're new, like even if Gospel Life Church has become your home relatively recently, hopefully this is something that's like very familiar to you. The Christian journey is full of competing voices. Right, we talk about this a lot. Actually, it's part of our disciple-making pathway. If you go out and you grab this card, why we exist has another QR code that will take you to our website and give you some more understanding of who we are as a church. If you look at the back side, we have a disciple-making pathway. The way that we, we think the scriptures talk about disciple-making, not in terms of like a pathway for us to climb, like here are all the things you need to check off to, to be, become more Christianly, right? but rather a pathway for the gospel into our hearts to bring about the kind of joy and transformation that it actually accomplishes and, and transformation, therefore. But if you read the very first sentence, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, okay, but it just says, throughout the week, we're bombarded by voices competing for our greatest loves. Like, this is why, that's, that's where our pathway starts. It's an admission of where we're at, right? So this is why the proclaimed word is the center of our disciple-making. That's why the preached word, the proclaimed word, the word on Sunday mornings going forth in our song and spoken word and in, in, in our preaching is at the very center of our understanding of disciple-making. We're inundated by competing voices, vying for our attention, vying for our desire, vying to become the central good of our lives. And a great example of these competing voices is found in John Bunyan's allegorical work, The Pilgrim's Progress, which again, like, listen, I reference a lot at Gospel Life Church. In our recent history over the last few weeks, I've opened up a children's account of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress and read it to you. I've Spent time in various illustrations throughout the work since the beginning of Gospel Life Church. But it's very intentional. And for this reason, you know, if you've, if you've never read it, I encourage you, pick it up. Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. If it's been a while, maybe it's worth a rereading because many of these competing voices that we experience regularly, Bunyan writes about in the book. In the story, the protagonist Christian embarks on this journey to the celestial city, the place of the king, the one who holds salvation out for those who live in the city of destruction, which is all of us. But on this journey, what does he encounter? All of these voices, these competing voices that, in, that seek to intentionally lead him astray. And so worldly wise man attempts to divert Christianity, attempts to divert, divert Christian from his path toward Christianity by suggesting an easier and more comfortable route to salvation representing the allure of worldly wisdom, worldly success, what the world holds out to us, a voice that we commonly hear today. 
He and his companions then talk to a Christian about religion and try to persuade Christian along with Mr. Byans to compromise, to compromise his principles, to compromise what he believes for the sake of social acceptance and convenience, which is another voice that we hear commonly in our culture today, just compromise truth. Why? For the sake of social acceptance, cultural acceptance. Mr. Legality then shouts out a voice that attempts to focus Christian not on the grace of the king, but rather on his own efforts in reaching the celestial city. And so he encounters voice after voice, shame, talkative, envy, superstition, all of which attempt to capture the deepest longings of his heart and thereby divert him from his journey, from perseverance in, in faith. And yet there's one in the story they all recognize to be the authentic and true. The one with the credibility to actually give guidance. The one with the means to rescue those who face judgment, which again in the story is everyone. And every faithful voice that Christian encounters in the Pilgrim's Progress is actually a voice that only bears witness and testimony to the truthfulness of that voice, the King, God himself. And in John 10, we see something similar because last week we looked at these two means of governance, right? Jesus exposes the reality that moralism governs by fear, that creates fear in the human heart, that the voice of moralism actually controls us by, manipulates us by making us afraid to do otherwise, whereas the gospel of Jesus Christ actually governs by grace. But now Jesus expands on that. Right? He wants to describe what his governance actually looks like. And in particular, he wants us to be able to recognize his voice in the midst of all the competing voices. How do we recognize the voice of our shepherd? Well, we see in the text five descriptors of the call of Christ. Five, five descriptors of the voice of Jesus, the voice of the shepherd, beginning in verses 1 through 3. So let's look there. And I should say... These descriptors are going to build on one another, so it's not like they're just found in the verses that we've highlighted, right? We'll see them throughout the text, but we'll highlight a couple of verses at a time to clearly delineate each one. So look with me at verses 1 through 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way... That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Okay, so the first descriptor of the voice of Jesus, the first characteristic of it, the first way that we might recognize it is the voice of Jesus is, is legitimate. It's legitimate. The governance of, of Jesus is not a false government, governance. It's not somehow fraudulent or predatory. It's genuine. His voice is the true voice. His voice is the one with authority. And we actually see that pretty clearly as the text opens because Jesus begins with this metaphor that his audience would have been really familiar with. So it's, it's hard for us sometimes, I think, to read the scriptures in part because 
The metaphors that would have drawn a first century audience in aren't necessarily the same ones that will draw all of us in. In first century Palestine, this is something people would have heard this and been immediately interested. Something that many, many people would have had immediate uh, familiarity with, okay? This whole chapter is set in and around a sheep pen. Now, sheep pens in the ancient Near East could look different from place to place. It could be briars out in the wilderness as herds were moving from place to place. But in this case, I think we're meant, I think we're meant to envision a large, independent, gated, or fenced area where several families would have kept their sheep, would have hired someone to watch over the gate to allow entrance only to those who had legitimate claim to enter, right? And so Jesus immediately makes a distinction here between the one who's supposed to be there by right, so if you look at the text, and any others who come in without legitimate claim. So pretty obviously, the one who's supposed to, to watch the gate, to, to be there, will recognize the family who owns the sheep. He'll recognize the shepherd of the sheep, okay? He'll also call out against anyone trying to open the gate without rightful claim. And that's why, again, pretty obviously, thieves and robbers wouldn't go through the front gate, okay? They'd be seen. The person whose job it was to keep watch over the gate would recognize this is not somebody who's supposed to be here. This is not somebody that I'm familiar with. They could see anyone coming in with underhanded motives. And so they'd climb in secretly by another way, climbing in in the back, climbing in under cover of darkness in the hopes of slipping past anyone keeping watch. And so the clear point of this language has to do with the legitimacy of the call of Jesus, the legitimacy of the voice of Jesus. And not to extend the metaphor Jesus uses here too far, but this is why the leadership of Gospel Life Church takes doctrine seriously. I think it's an immediate application of the text. One of our roles as a church is to keep watch. It's to keep watch so that those who might come in with nefarious motives, attempt to make claims of legitimacy, but speak out in a way that simply do not square with the voice of our shepherd, might be called out, might be kept from entering into the community. Now, sadly, the, these days, a lot of false voices not only come in through the back door of the Western church, unnoticed, like people might creep in, but not only that, they're often invited in. It's a real problem right now, and I think at least part of that problem has to do with what we talked about last week, which is moralism governs by fear, you know? And right now we have a new kind of moralism and I, I think it extends both to, like, to, to both extreme ends of the political world, for sure, but I, I think sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, moralism, moralism's for religious people, or moralism's for theologically conservative people, that's where they tend to lean, but that's not actually true. Moralism governs by fear, but we have a new kind of moralism that says, hey, if you step out of line with current culture, you'll be targeted by culture in a way that will make it very clear that you don't get it. Like, like, think about the parents of the man born blind last week. Do you remember? What happened? Well, they were, they were afraid to speak because they were afraid of being put out of the temple. And this is obviously a religious example of that. But what was the temple? It was like the center of their social lives. It was the center of their cultural life. 
It was where their friends were. It was the center of Jewish culture of the time. These days, you know, it's not the church that's the center of our culture, right? Yet there's great fear that if we push back against the culture, we'll be put out of the culture. We'll be told that targeted in a way that says to others, we don't get it, that we're ignorant, that we're antiquated, that we're not up on our philosophy or legal theory, and because we still care very much what the world thinks of us, as evidenced by our constant need of approval in media, we're in danger of opening up those front gates and giving the thief and the robber a hero's welcome. It's true. I won't belabor the point because we'll see an example of it later in the text. We'll see more of the motive behind it. The question is, what's the alternative? What, what, what's, if, if those are the illegitimate voices, what's the legitimate voice? And the Old Testament commonly makes use of this metaphor. The listeners of Jesus actually know what the answer to that is. Passages like Ezekiel 34 come to mind here, in which the prophet calls out the shepherds of Israel for their abusive and illegitimate treatment over God's people. So Ezekiel, the prophet, rebukes these so-called shepherds for slaughtering choice animals, clothing themselves in wool, but completely failing to look out for the flock. Ezekiel writes, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. You might think these words are hopeless, but then the Lord offers hope. And the hope isn't found in this group of leaders that he's rebuking, that somehow they can turn it around or pull themselves up and fix it. But in something else entirely, he says, I will rescue my flock. I will bring them out from the nations. I myself will tend my sheep. I'm not sure if you remember, but so we preached through Zechariah immediately before coming into John's gospel account. At the end of Zechariah in chapter 11, do you remember what we looked at? We looked at this contrast between the abusive shepherd and the true shepherd. Jesus is making use of this imagery here. And who's the true shepherd? Well, the word of the Lord in Ezekiel declares, I will place over them a shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Who is this servant David who would be the true shepherd of God's people? He's the offspring of the Davidic covenant, the one who comes from David's line, who is to restore Israel's hope, to establish legitimate rule. And here, once again, Jesus says, like as we've seen throughout John's account, it's talking about me, right? This true and better theme that we see running throughout John's gospel. He's saying it's talking about me. Just like the light that we saw at the Feast of Tabernacle and all that Old Testament imagery, he says, is actually about me. All this language about sheep and shepherds, he's saying this is about me. He's establishing his legitimacy. If Jesus is who John claims him to be in the prologue, if he is who he has claimed to be throughout John's gospel, Stating, before Abraham was, I am. And that's language that we're going to see used again twice in this section of Scripture. If that's true, like if if it's true that God entered human history in the person of Jesus, then he's the only one with rightful claim over the sheep. But it begs the question, right? So 
His, his voice is legitimate. His call is legitimate. His authority, his rule is legitimate. But what kind of rule is it? What kind of claim is it? What kind of call is it? Is it a call to the slaughterhouse? He has rightful claim, but what's he going to do with his people? Look at the rest of verse 3 for our second descriptor. Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So here we move from legitimacy. Jesus has a legitimate rule that in the midst of competing voices, Jesus is the legitimate voice, to now caring. His voice is caring. There's a pastoral big P, care, a shepherding care extended to God's people because the gatekeeper in the beginning of verse 3 opens up to the one with legitimate claim, but then the one with legitimate claim now speaks. The sheep hear his voice. To give us a picture of what he's describing here, this was true in the ancient Near East, but it's actually also true in the Near East today. It's true in the Scottish Highlands. It's true in places of Aust- like Australia where shepherding is, is still common. Shepherds can still be seen standing in different locations around the pen, calling out a very particular call, right? To which their sheep, that's a part of this common fenced area, their sheep will immediately identify. That shepherd's sheep will immediately identify and come, and all the sheep will come. They'll hear this particular call. It's voiced by a particular shepherd. They hear the vocal tones. They hear the very unique call, and they all come kind of trotting, trotting over, right? They all gather around the shepherd. Why? Because they know this is their shepherd, that he feeds them, that he takes them out to pasture, that he leads them to water, that he's good to them. You know, and I think yeah, you know, we even get, get this sense of anyone who owns animals. Like it's true of, of my dog Maverick knows my voice very distinctly. He knows my call. When he hears it, he comes over. He knows that we feed him, that we love him, that we care for him. And in case you think I'm drawing too much from the hearing of the voice and being led out to pasture, you know, the shepherding care, that care of the shepherd is highlighted even more, and I think very intentionally by the author, by the reality that This shepherd goes further than having a specific call for the collective sheep. He actually knows them by name. He calls them by name. He knows them. They're his. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but what this means is, yes, so he he calls his people, and we'll see that there's a sheep collective. There's a sheep. There's a corporate sheep. There's a group of sheep. But he knows them individually. Individually, individually known by the shepherd himself, not just a nameless collective, but individual members of that collective whom the shepherd knows and cares for and calls to himself. And you know what it also means, although this is hard to grapple with, but we're going to take a look at it more closely next week. It means that in some sense, these sheep belong to him even before he calls to them because immediately they know his voice. Okay? So we'll see that, like I said, in the grammar even more forcefully in verses 27 and 28 next week. But this call is entirely rooted in the care and love of a shepherd who was in some sense our shepherd even before he called us. We we already are known to him. We're known by him. It doesn't start with our knowledge of this shepherd. Like our relationship with the shepherd doesn't start with our knowledge of him. 
It doesn't start with our movement toward him. It starts with his initiation to us, his knowledge of us, his love and care for us. Yet we often doubt his care. Listen, it's true. Like, it can be hard to come to church on a Sunday morning and sing the songs that we sing that describe God's care when we're going through difficult times. It can be really hard to sing the words, and so to him I leave it all. You know? My father's care is round me there. It can be hard at times to trust, to believe that the care is true, and that's in part because we need to remember the next descriptor of his shepherding, verses 4 through 6. So look there with me. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Okay, so we see more shepherding care. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus' call, his voice, it's, it's characterized by legitimacy, by caring, but it's also transformative, Right? Transformation. In other words, because he's the legitimate shepherd, those who are truly his must respond to what he says. You know, we must grant him all authority over life. There is a trust that continues to become established for those who say, okay, I recognize Jesus as legitimate. His voice is legitimate. He is God entered into human history. He's come to do everything that he said he's come to do. I recognize his care for me. But even in the moments where that's hard to recognize, I I see that all of this is transformative. It seeks to take me from where I am now to growing more and more into his likeness. And, And part of what that means is we must not grant the authority that only he is due to other competing voices. Like, his voice shapes us. His voice shapes us, and in part, the way that it shapes us is not to grant this kind of response or to be transformed by culture. It's to be transformed by him, right? So again, the image here continues with the shepherd, enters the pen. Only some of the sheep respond to him in this way. Within the pen... They will not find the food or water that they need. They require to be led to pasture. Like, I'm not sure if you've heard stories like this, but but it's happened before where sheep are penned up and something happens to the shepherd or to the family caring for the livestock or to the family caring for the sheep. And so they have to remain in the pen for days or weeks because of tragedy. It was more common a long time ago, you know. This was a more common problem a long time ago but it still happens today. And what happens to those animals that are left in the pen that aren't brought water, that aren't brought out to pasture? Well, they die. It's a dire situation for those animals that aren't let out. They're not led out of the pen by their shepherd, right? Psalm 23 easily comes to mind here. And and it's one of those passages that's just so ingrained in our consciousness that I think we kind of minimize it. Like the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. When we know something really well, but think about it, like the Lord is our shepherd, So again, here's a text declaring who the shepherd is. It's the Lord himself. I shall not want. I have everything I need in him, in other words. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. 
He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The legitimate shepherd of the sheep has come. He's come to grant care and love to those who are his. Those who belong to him will know his voice and they'll respond. They'll be transformed by it. They'll be shaped by it. They'll be taken to pasture because they respond to his voice. They hear the voice and they know that it means to follow. They're shaped to follow. They grant authority. They won't simply acknowledge his legitimacy while simultaneously ignoring his voice. Do you hear that? Because this is a problem. It's worth considering. It's worth, it's worth us considering this because it's a very real problem in the life of the Western church. And, and honestly, it always has been a problem throughout church history. Those who want to claim Jesus as our legitimate king but who do not desire to live under his kingship. Instead, they give their allegiance to other voices. You know, we often want to even build our churches and ministries by giving lip service to, like, the legitimacy of Jesus as king while ignoring or, or bypassing, trying to end around his means of growth, his means of ministry. Like, like God, yeah, 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 you're the legitimate king, but just trust us, we know better about how to do this stuff. According to this passage, if he's truly our shepherd, we won't be able to acknowledge his legitimacy without extending our authority to him, without recognizing that it shapes us, without being shaped by it, without being transformed. In fact, a stranger we will not follow, but we'll flee from him, for we do not know the voice of strangers, those of us that belong to him. When a thief or a robber sneak in and somehow we hear their calls, we will not recognize their voice. Their voice does not match the voice of our Lord, right? It doesn't match the voice of our Lord. Their voice contradicts the voice of our Lord. Maybe their voice mirrors and echoes certain things about the word, but really there is no gospel center to any of it. We'll know that something is not right, you know, the text tells us, and we'll run. Oh, my daughters uh, last night told me they were watching the movie Hook. I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but the premise of this movie is that Captain Hook kidnaps Peter Pan's kids, takes them hostage, tries to convince them over time that he's their legitimate father. Peter Pan has no legitimate claim over them. That actually, he's their legitimate dad. One of the kids, though, slowly starts to have his heart shaped more and more by this murderous pirate. He starts granting parental authority to Captain Hook, you know. He starts dressing like him, like he's dressing like a pirate, trying to speak like a pirate, you know. But the youngest child, Maggie, continually resists because she knows this is not her true father. She knows the voice of her dad. This is not her true father. And so what does she encourage her older brother, Jack, to do? To resist. How? She says, run. Run home. Run home, Jack. Run to your true dad. Like, this is why in the church we need to be creatures of the word because, you know, you're not going to recognize that the voice of the one in the pen means you harm who mimics certain aspects of the scriptures just enough to kind of grant a, get a foothold or gain an interest. You're not going to know that that's the voice of a thief or a robber if you don't know the word. If we're not creatures of the word, we won't know that. We should be steeped in the word because here we have the voice of our shepherd and the idea is, you know, 
Hearing the voice of a stranger in the pen should be startling to us. It should be startling in the way that, like, if you heard a voice down the hall in your living room at 2 a.m. that didn't belong to anyone in your family, you know, what would your reaction be? Like, hushed tones that you knew didn't, these are not voices of anyone in my, my family. Startle you? Startle you to, to, to grab your family and flee or to fight against it? Right? It should have this kind of effect on us that the text describes here when this happens in the life of the church. We'll sense danger from that voice, we'll flee from that voice, and yet here we have confirmation that the religious leaders who are hearing Jesus speak simply do not know him. They are among those who do not know his voice. Look at verse 6, this figure of speech. Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. There are those in the crowd that, that, don't, hear the, that don't recognize the shepherd. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. The religious leaders of the people have a responsibility of shepherding the people, and yet they don't know his voice. They're not his. They don't go where he leads. Where does he lead? Well, here we see the fourth descriptor in verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about Abraham. He's not talking about those that the scriptures say waited upon and pointed forward to the Messiah. He is talking about these false shepherds that we've talked about all along. So, okay. All who came before me are, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here we see the voice of Jesus is a voice that's salvific. It's transformative, caring, legitimate, and salvific in nature. It saves. And the metaphor shifts a bit here. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, it, all right, if you're having a hard time understanding According to verse 6, the metaphor that I'm using here, let me shift this up a little bit. Because in the previous verse, Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep, yet here he's the gate. In some sense, this might be a distinction without a difference because, to a degree, because shepherds would care for their flock routinely by laying in the gateway, you know? That way, if a sheep was to try to escape through the gate, they'd have to climb over the shepherd and he could, you know, that's where he'd sleep, so he'd just kind of wrestle them back. Or if something, some animal was trying to get through the gate to prey on the sheep, he'd know, he'd wake up, he'd be startled, he could fight. Like, what, uh, parents know this approach, you know, like, when I would take the kids camping, especially when they were younger, like, I remember the first time I took Molly and Nora camping, and they're so little, and like, I'm so worried they're gonna, like, in the middle of the night try to stumble out of the tent. I'm, like, laying right over that door, you know, for the same reason, right? Like, if, if a kid was to try to leave, they'd have to climb over me, okay? So, in, in this sense, the shepherd is actually the gate. But more than that, we need to understand, like, it is more than that. It's the same kind of double meaning that we saw in the text a couple weeks ago and that we're going to see more of. Like, do you remember when Jesus said he was the light of the world, he meant that, we talked about this, he meant both that he himself was the light and he was the thing the light showed us, you know? Like, he was the light. But he wasn't a light that was like shining on some other thing other than him and saying, there it is. That's almost what John the Baptist was trying to do, direct all attention to Jesus, you know. But Jesus isn't like shining light on some other thing. Jesus is the light, but he's also the thing that the light shows us. 
Jesus is that which gives us sight, but he's also the one that we can now see, okay? And the same kind of thing is happening here. Jesus is the one who's calling the sheep to the way. He's leading them to the gate. He's leading them out. He's leading them to the way, but he is the way. He's the way to the pasture. He's the way to water. He's the way to life. He is the life himself. Okay, the sheep in this pen are in dire need. They're in danger apart from him. He leads to life. He brings salvation. He does so not by pointing them to some external reality, but ultimately by pointing them to himself. He is the gate. And so here we see this clear distinction from Jesus' legitimate rule, okay, which brings about care. It demands, it demands our, our authority that we grant to him. It demands a shaping of the Christian life. Demands authority that we give over. And the many illegitimate false voices that we hear throughout the week that vie for our ultimate loves and ultimate attentions look completely different. Not only are they illegitimate, but they provide the opposite of like care and salvation. They transform us. Like it's true. These voices vying for our attention will be transformative, but not in the ways that we think. And it's so easy to see some external thing that we position as like the greatest good, that thing that's actually going to save us, whether it's my job or my, some relationship with a person. These can even be good things, some relationship with a person or some political figure or, or something else, right? And that thing can really transform our hearts if it becomes our primary thing, but it will not give us care. It does not save Right? Actually, the text tells us the opposite. They come to kill and destroy. Thieves, these competing voices come to kill and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life. He's the one through whom we might have life. He calls us to that life. He himself is that life. So do we see how important that imagery is? The light and the thing the light points to. You know, the shepherd out of the gate and the gate itself, the way itself. All right. How does Jesus provide it? Here's where we see the fifth descriptor. The voice of Jesus is self-sacrificial. Starting in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So this section here is striking language for a few different reasons, right? It really gets the attention of those who are listening, specifically because what it says about the shepherd, it's very unique. But to understand it, we almost need to start with the false shepherds, the hired hands, Jesus calls them. Here we see Jesus' reference, not necessarily those who've come with the intent of bringing false teaching, with the intent of leading God's people astray, but rather those that we talked about earlier who allow in any kind of illegitimate shepherd to spout nonsense to God's people, usually out of fear. This is what I was saying, like we'd see an example of it later on in the text. Fear kind of grips us. It causes us to, to not see the sheep as our own. You know, like, I'm not dying for something that's not mine. So they bail. They don't want to be caught in the wolf's teeth, so they let the wolf in. Man, there are so many, it's just so, it's ubiquitous, right? Like, we don't want to be caught in the world's teeth, 
We don't want to experience disapproval from the world in which we live, and so we let the world in, and we let the culture dictate the life of the church, you guys. Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't do this. And not only so, but he provides the means through which we might not do it at Gospel Life Church. He provides the means by which you and I might not respond in fear by letting in falsehoods, but rather stand for truth, and stand for truth in a way that actually reflects the kinds of in a, in a caring way, in a way that's transformed by the heart of Jesus, in a way that points to his salvation, in a way that's actually self-sacrificial. We're able to do that. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That's why. Because he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I am the good shepherd. This is, like I said, it's striking for two reasons. First of all, because this first sentence from Jesus is... It's like a double claim of his divinity, you know? Because first you have the I am language, which I've talked about at length before, so please just go back. You can listen to chapter 6. You can listen to the various I am statements throughout. We see this I am language of the Old Testament, the I am language coming out of the burning bush, God declaring I am who I am, that this is my name, the I am language of Isaiah that always pointed to like the coming Messiah, that this was God himself entering into human history. So it's, 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 a divine claim by saying I am, but it's also a divine claim by referring to himself as the good shepherd because who's the shepherd of Israel in the Old Testament? Over and over again. God says, I will be the shepherd. I am the shepherd of God's people. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. The Lord will be the one to lead you. So that's one of the reasons it's striking because like, it's just another example of Jesus doubling down on the very thing that's getting him into trouble with the religious leaders. But okay, then he says, he follows that up with something that's even maybe more controversial to those who are listening, that it's like, wait a minute, if you are this Messiah who's to come, why would you say this? He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, the reason it's so striking is because it goes beyond how you might try to interpret it in a normal way. Like, this isn't just self-sacrificial, the self-sacrificial nature of shepherding. You know, like, I mean, a good shepherd would routinely have to fight off animals. David has to fight off a bear in 1 Samuel 17, you know, like. Today, like, in the Scottish Highlands, in Australia, it's no joke. Like, we have this culture in, within the church, that, mostly because of children's books, that pictures shepherds as, like, holding eight cuddly sheep at once, you know, and just, like, looking all soft and just, doing, you know, hugging and it's, man, this is not how the shepherds in the Scottish Highlands roll, you know? It's tough work. It's hard. These guys, you know, they have to protect the sheep. They have to fight off animals. It's pretty rare, though, to be killed by an animal attacking the sheep. It's super rare. Likely happens. Part of the job, right? It's what a good shepherd would do to care for a sheep. But the difference is, Jesus isn't saying that he's like, willing to lay down his life if that's what it comes to, you know. He actually came to die. His purpose was to die, you know, and that's so confusing. Like, even in the instance where a shepherd is willing to risk their life to defend, it was never the intent of the shepherd to die, but the language that Jesus uses goes beyond just being willing to die. So Carson puts it this way. He says, by the strong language Jesus uses, he points beyond the metaphorical world now to himself. 
He does not merely risk his life, he lays it down. So, okay, but why? Clearly his first century hearers are wondering why. How is it that Jesus is intending to die? Why would a shepherd die? Wouldn't that just leave your sheep vulnerable and unprotected? To like, okay, my point, we're going to lead you out here and then I'm going to die for you. You know, like, whoa. Well, it won't, end, it won't end in his death, as we'll see. But this is, you know, it's a super confusing statement. Carson continues. Okay, he says, The shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as an example throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and futile display while bellowing, see how much I love you, you know? And, and I think this is important because we get Jesus' atonement for us wrong in these ways. When we see it as some example for us to follow, like a mere example for us to follow, or when we see it as like Jesus is the one who's pulled over on the highway in front of us so the rest of us know there's a speed trap and can keep going, you know, can slow down and then speed up later. Like, that's how some of us, it's easy to view the atonement in those kind of like exemplary terms, but that's not it because if this was the case, imagine a shepherd doing this. Then the sheep are just like, do we, do we jump off the cliff? Too? What, do we, what do we do here? He says, no, the assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger that the sheep are in mortal danger, that in their defense, the shepherd loses his life, and that by his death, they are saved. That and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I sought to know nothing else among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. Jesus came that we might have life. He's the one through whom we might have life. He calls us to life, and this is how he does it. The assumption is the sheep are in mortal danger, that in their defense the shepherd loses his life. See, he grants us life by losing his life, and by his death they are saved. This is why Jesus came. We were in mortal danger because of sin. By his death at the cross, standing in our place, taking on the penalty of sin, like imagine Jesus the shepherd at the gate, beating off sin with a cross. Standing at the gate, laying his life down for the sheep. That was his purpose in coming. And all this is possible because of the final descriptive, final descriptor, which is that his call to us is grace-centered. And this is important, right? So let me look to the text, explain a little bit, and then I want us to come to the table. Because look, Jesus writes, again, he says it again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. You see the shepherd's going further. He's saying, I've come. The purpose was to die. No one's foisted this upon me. No one's told me you have to do this. And I was, you know, I, I had to, you know, relentingly go to the cross. He says, I laid it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Listen, there's a lot here. Let me just conclude by saying 
The reason we belong to him, and I think this is really the thrust of these passages, it's not because we're so good, you know? It's not because we were able to listen to his voice and then listen to the competing voices and discern rightly and figure it out and judge rightly between the, the competing voices and Jesus. And it's like, oh, I, I applied my logic and my wit. I applied my, my uh, critical thinking skills. And I came to the conclusion that it's Jesus and not these other voices. No, listen, his grace was such that he saved us even when we would not have ever, ever heard him. We were unable to hear him, and he saved us out of that. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Again, verses 27 and 28. Wait till next week. It's going to get stronger than that. Listen to me. It's important because verse, verse 16 is related to this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, right? Not like two or three or four flocks of like the best sheep and then like yeah, the varsity sheep, and then the JV sheep, and the sheep that got cut, but they're still athletic, and then, you know, the sheep that have given up all hope of playing for any team kind of deal. That's not, that's, this isn't the order of things. There's one flock. There's one, why? Because there aren't, there's, there's no hierarchy of best to least. All of us are in the same need of Christ, and listen to me, a church that believes, a, a people that believe that they, in some sense, saved themselves, will never be evangelistic. They'll never be proclaiming the gospel, not the way that Jesus describes proclaiming the gospel, not the same gospel to the world around them. Why? Because we, well, what do we think in terms of? We think in terms of enemy, like there's the rest of the world, they're my enemy, and then there's us, like we get it. So we get it, and there's my enemies, you know. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, and the flesh and blood need the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to them. Because... We might say, well, yeah, but there's evil and wicked people in this world. Yeah, there are, but, but do we really believe? Do we really believe that apart from Jesus' grace and mercy, I was wicked? You know, or do we say, well, yeah, sure, but not like that, you know? And that's where it's like, once we go down that road, we're not going to be evangelistic. We won't proclaim the gospel. We won't be sharing our faith. We won't see the reality that he has other sheep that are not of this world because that are not of this fold, and he must bring them also because we'll see those people as like, Oh, keep them, you know? I, I did this for my, my efforts, okay? There's one flock, one shepherd, grace-centered, and there's again a division because of these words the text tells us. Many say, he has a demon, he's insane. Others say, come on, demons can't open the eyes of the blind, and why is this here? Well, I think it's here for us to focus on the grace-centered aspect. Why? Because how does the text begin and end? And I don't mean chapter 10, I mean this section which began in chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man. How does it begin and end? It begins with mention of Jesus healing the blind by grace. So what is our call? Our call is to hear that, to, again, it invites the reader with this inclusio of Jesus healing the blind at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus healing the blind, discussion of Jesus healing the blind in the, at 1021, you know? It invites the reader to consider that Jesus, by grace, gives us sight, that Jesus, by grace, is the true shepherd, that Jesus, by grace, leads us to the way, that Jesus, by grace, leads us to life, right? And so then it, it necessarily asks us these questions. And this is really the, the central theme, central theme in the form of questions. 
To whose voice will you listen? Even more to the point, how will you respond to the voice of Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you trust in his care and love? Will you trust his legitimacy? Will you grant him all authority in your life? Will you be shaped by his voice? Will you throw yourself on his mercy? Will you recognize his sheer grace and love? It's in the absence of these things that competing voices grab a foothold. The way we fend it off is similarly with a cross. We fend off those competing voices with the cross, Jesus' cross, proclaiming it to one another, proclaiming it to one another in song and in spoken word and in preaching and here on Sunday, right, reorienting ourselves to the cross. But then throughout the week, man, my prayer is that you're meeting together, that you're encouraging one another with this gospel, that you're speaking it into one another's lives. And so we see this cross on display each week for this very purpose, and we see it here at the table for this very reason. Here we have a reminder to us of Jesus' body broken and his blood shed, him fending off our sin, that we might know him by grace alone, that we go with him in this way, that he's our shepherd. And so I invite you, if you're a believer, to come forward and take these elements so that we might receive them together in communion together.